This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. We so appreciate Brian and his long years of service here in uh, Ireland for Israel and for the ICEJ. And, um, and we also want to honor this church for your support of Israel over the years and your support of Brian and the ICEJ. And so it's wonderful to be here with you this evening. Yes, I'm another one of those Americans that have come here looking for their roots. <laughs> But it is um, very special for me. Uh, George says that most of you look like my relatives. (laughs) And um, I I learned things about myself, about my father, about my family being here. And uh, it's wonderful being with the good people of Ireland. You're a blessing. And you've been a blessing to George and I as we've been here. I had the privilege of first going to Israel as a 19-year-old. I was a college student. And I was a Bible major. So I had this opportunity to study abroad. So where would you go except the land of the Bible? And um, I really knew nothing about it. But I had known the Lord for about two years, and I was just devouring my Bible. I was reading it every day as that spiritual guidebook, as the Lord's love letter to me. And then now I'm in university, and I'm studying it every day as a theology book to learn the doctrines, to learn how to interpret it correctly. And I go to Israel, and still this book just stands up on its feet and comes alive. It takes on a third dimension. You get there to Israel, and you realize it is a history book also about real people and real places. And everything is true. And everything is being proven with every archaeological find. It does nothing but support the Bible. And my life was forever changed. Now, how many of you have had the opportunity to go to Israel? Okay, a few. We have to work on this. We, these numbers, Brian, we need a lot more of them going with you to the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's no better time to go than during the Feast of Tabernacles. You can still tour the land and do everything you would do on a normal tour, but it's the only time of year you can take in that magnificent experience of the Feast of Tabernacles, worshiping with thousands of Christians from 80 nations around the world. So we invite you uh, to come and have that life change experience. Well, the Bible, when it comes to Israel, the church, Christians, you know, it can get a little confusing. And we come across different theories from this person or from that person. And so what I would like to do tonight, because I can tell this is a church, you've had a lot of teaching. I think all the ICJ speakers have come through here. Um, But I'd like to share with you something um, that the Lord has um, showed me just recently to help us to find that healthy balance of understanding of God's calling on Israel and his calling on the church. And yes, we have our PowerPoint up. I'd like to read to you out of Acts chapter 1. This is the last words of Jesus before he ascends to heaven. He has been crucified. He has been resurrected. He has now appeared to his disciples over a period of some 40 days. And these are his final words. Now, the disciples have been with him for three years. 
And this is what they choose to ask him as they see the time is, is uh, winding down with him. And so they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you should be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, when you and I read our Bible, I hate to admit this. It's painful to admit this. But we all read our Bible from our own cultural context. And many times we interpret what it's saying based on our culture, our worldview, what we already think in our minds. Very seldom are we able to really read the Bible in a completely unbiased way. And this is why it is so important for us to learn about the Hebraic culture of Jesus, the Hebraic culture of the Bible, so that we can begin to hear the words of Jesus in the way he meant them, because he spoke those words in a particular cultural context, and they meant certain things to those people. And because we're coming from a completely different culture, even language, we don't always grasp what the people grasped when they heard him speak those words. So here we see that after spending three years at the feet of Jesus, the disciples are still waiting for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Now, when you and I read the words of Jesus, we tend to read them in their spiritual context, that he was telling them, no, no, it's not about the physical, it's about the spiritual. It's not about the law, it's about the heart. And we tend to see that. So we would read these verses and we'd jump right over to verse number eight, where he says, but you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And you will be witnesses for me until the farthest ends of the earth. And we sort of skip over that question because we don't quite understand what the disciples are asking about. So tonight I want us to talk about this and what they, were t what they meant and the calling that is on Israel and how it differs because many times we have some in the church that are over here and they say, look, God is just finished with the Jews. He's finished with Israel. It's all over. They rejected Jesus. It's all over. It's now all with the church. And then we have people, they, such as myself, we go to Israel, our Bible comes alive, we get excited, and we come back, and some of us end up a little bit over too far on this side, and it's all about Israel, and we're trying to make the church look like Israel. So we need to find that balance here of what is God saying here, what is his calling on Israel, and what is the calling on on the church. Note here that Jesus's answer in verse seven, he does not tell the disciples this. He does not say, oh, Yahweh, I've been with you for three years. Haven't you heard me yet? There is no physical kingdom. It's all about the spirit. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say that, did he? He did not correct them. He only said 
the timing is in the Father's control. In other words, there will be a restored kingdom of Israel, and the timing is in the Father's control. So the call on Israel, I'm going to give a this when we need to go to the next slide, okay? So the call of Israel. All right, first of all, what the story is not about. The story of Israel is not about a group of people that God loved more than all the other people in the world. It's not about, it's not a story about a people that are somehow more special, they're smarter, they're more holy, or they're more righteous, or they're more something than everybody else, and that's why they're the, quote, chosen people. It's not that at all. The story of Israel is actually the story of God's love for the world, for you and me, a fallen, broken world. And it's the story of his plan to redeem that world. And unfortunately, it's the story of the battle against God's plan to redeem the world. And central to this story of God's plan for the world is the calling on the people of Israel. We often hear, as I said, the idea that God is finished with the Jews. So sometimes we start reading our Bible with this worldview and this thought that Jesus, that because God is finished with the Jews and he's now working with Israel and we read the scriptures from that context. But in Ephesians chapter one, uh, verses four and five, this is what this is what uh, it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself. Now, this is saying that before the foundation of the world was laid, that there was a plan in eternity through which we would be adopted into the family through Christ Jesus. That was always plan A. It was laid before the foundations of the earth were laid. This means that Jesus' death on the cross for us was always plan A. So the Jewish people did not fail God. And they were not rejected. And God had to come up with a new plan with a new people. They actually fulfilled the calling of God by giving up for the world the death of Jesus on the tree. That's how we are saved. That's how we are adopted into the family is through that atoning death of Jesus on the tree. You know, in Revelation 13, 8, it says the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. This was always plan A. So there's no plan A and plan B. There's no old people and now new people. So the story of Israel begins in Genesis. And of course, it begins in the Garden of Eden. Man is dead and in sin. He's destined to die. There's no hope for man. Man has failed God, and we are paying the price for it. And then one day, God decides now is the time to initiate my plan of world redemption, which I've had since the beginning of time. And when he initiated that plan, the first thing he did was he spoke 
to a man named Abraham. We read about it in Genesis 12. This is known as the pivotal moment in the entire Bible, that from this point on, the whole Bible takes its course from God's covenant with this man named Abraham. So on the next slide I have, there we go, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I want to read it for you. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God announces to Abraham that he is going to make out of him a great nation. And out of this, he's going to bless all the families of the earth. So the, the call of Abraham, which is the call on his descendants and the people of Israel, you could say is a birthing call that through Abraham, God was going to birth a nation. And through that nation, he was going to birth his plan of world redemption, that he would take his plan, which was set before eternity and bring it down into real time and real place through the people of Israel. Now, Many times people will say, you know, well, why do you bless Israel? Or why do you pray for Israel? Why do you support Israel? And most of the time, the, the answer that a Christian would give is out of this verse. Well, God says, I'll bless those that bless them and I'll curse those that curse them. So I, I bless them. Well, I would like to take a minute and ask, but why did God say that? Was he really just giving us a formula for being blessed? Why did he say this to Abraham? This is because he was birthing a nation and he was saying anyone that blesses them and blesses what I'm doing through you, Abraham, they're blessing my people, they're blessing my choice of a people, and they're blessing my plan of world redemption. And in doing that, they're actually helping with that plan. They're actually assuring the survival of this people. They're blessing and assisting in my plan. But somebody that's going to curse this people and oppose them and oppose what I'm doing through Abraham is actually opposing God's plan, his choice of a people, and his plan to redeem the world. So that's why we need to be blessing what God is blessing. And he has a plan that he initiated through them and is still carrying out through them. So the calling upon Israel is a birthing call, you could say. And the Apostle Paul lists for us the redemptive products that they brought into the world that they gifted us with that we wouldn't have had it not been for the Jewish people. So the Apostle Paul lists here the covenants, the law, the service of God, the worship in the temple, the promises, and of course, the Messiah, Jesus himself. And in Romans 3, 2, the Apostle Paul says that they were called to be the custodians of the word of God. So in effect, 
You and I would not have this Bible were it not for the faithfulness of the Jewish people to write it down and to copy it and to carry it through. But we wouldn't have a Bible if the Jewish people hadn't had their covenant with God, if we hadn't learned from all the stories in here about them. They obeyed God and set up the temple and the worship. We learned from all of that. So these are all products that they gave to the world that through them God gave. For instance, let me talk to you about the law. Many times we think that the law is the result of this mean, angry, judgmental God saying you've got to do this and you can't do this. And if you do this, then that's it. I'm just going to, you know, just push you out of the land. That's it. And, and it's like a judgmental God. And so we had better do right. But that's not what the law is about at all. God was revealing himself to his people and through them to all of us. He was revealing to them, I am a holy and righteous God. So you need to be holy and righteous. You need to be sure to do this and this and, and don't do that. In me, there's no lying. I am true and faithful. So don't lie. And don't murder and don't covet because none of those things are in me. If you want to walk with me, walk in my righteousness and in holiness and in obedience. But if you disobey and if you rebel against me and you go after other gods and you defile my land, you will be kicked out of the land. It's a natural consequence because it was designed to be a holy land for a holy people. So that brings us to the land. I want to talk to you a minute about the land. In, uh, in Genesis 17 here, the Lord goes on. He's now he's going to form these people into a nation before him. He's brought them out of slavery of Egypt. They're many in number, but they actually are not a nation. They've been slaves. They've been um, controlled and told what to do. He now needs to create them into the nation that he can use. So he, he gives them the law in Sinai, and he reveals his, his nature to them and what is required of them to walk with him and for him to be their God and for them to be his people. And then he tells them, and I bequeath to you the land of Canaan. Now, some people trip up over the land. They think, why is the land so important? You know, it's causing such controversy in the world today. Why is this land so important? So I like to describe it in this way. I like to liken the land to a stage. God needed a place through which he would do the great acts of God in history through this people that he was creating. So he set this land apart and he said here in Genesis 17, 7 to 8, you notice I underlined everlasting twice. This is so key. Why is the land an everlasting possession? Because the covenant is an everlasting covenant. 
As long as God is using the nation of Israel, they need the land to fulfill the covenant. It's an integral part of it. So as I said, it's like a stage. So he brings them on the stage out of Egypt, and they begin to multiply, and they begin to create their nationhood, their identity, their culture, their institutions. They built the temple, and they, and they put into practice what God had showed them in terms of how to worship him and the priesthood and all of these regulations and they put it all into place and they became a nation before him and he established the throne of David over them and he promised David your throne will last forever there will never fail to be before me someone on your throne this is what he established. But the people of Israel did fall into rebellion and into sin. And the prophets began, we read many of the prophets were warning the people of Israel, you had better turn back to God. Judgment is coming. It's coming. Judgment is coming. And sure enough, it came. And it came through the armies of the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And they were exiled out of the land into Assyria and Babylon. It was because of their sin, because the land that God, he called it his land, but he bequeathed it to them as a part of the covenant. They had defiled it. And so they were kicked out of that land. But then we read in our Bible how that under the Persians, they were allowed to trickle back and to begin rebuilding. And we read about that in Nehemiah and Ezra, how they began to rebuild Jerusalem. It was destroyed. It had been burned. The temple was destroyed. And they began to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. They began to reread the law. The people didn't even remember there was a law. So they began to reread. They began to reestablish themselves. They're back on the stage and they get everything set. It takes about four or 500 years. And finally, everything is set. And then one day, a priest named Zechariah is serving God in the temple. And the angel appears to him and says, you're going to have a son. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. And of course, it was John the Baptist. And then the angel Gabriel appears to a young Jewish woman named Mary and Joseph and tells her that she's going to birth the Messiah, the promised one. If they had not returned to the stage and rebuilt their life, Jesus could have never been born because he came as the Jewish Messiah. He had to come into a Jewish context on the stage. We have then the death, the ministry, uh, the ministry and the death of Jesus on the tree on our behalf. It was the second stage, the second act of God on the land. But sure enough, about 100 years after the death of Jesus under the Roman Empire, they're exiled again. And for 2,000 years, the Jewish people were in exile. In every country of the world, they ended up. And in our generations, in the last 150 years, we have seen God began to draw them back, and he's putting them back on stage for that next and final chapter of history and the great act of God there when they look up and say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they welcome Jesus back and he stands on the Mount of Olives and the kingdom of heaven 
comes down, the new Jerusalem comes down and is married with the old Jerusalem and the kingdom of God is on earth. That is the third great act and that's why God has brought them back to the stage in our days. Now with this unique calling on the Jewish people though, there is suffering because of it. You know, in the New Testament, it has a perfect picture of this in Revelation 12, 1 through 2. John the Apostle has a revelation here concerning Israel, and he sees a sign over a pregnant woman, the birthing role of Israel, a pregnant woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars of the 12 tribes of Israel. So this woman was a symbol of Israel in this birthing call. And the woman who is pregnant with the male child who is destined to rule the world with iron, but waiting to devour the child is the dragon. And what a perfect picture of the pursuit of this woman, of the people of Israel, by this dragon, century after century after century, because it's after the male child. It's all about stopping Jesus from appearing on the Mount of Olives and the kingdom of heaven coming down on earth, because on that day, the powers of hell lose their powers. They no longer rule and reign on earth. On the next slide here, I show you quickly the story of the persecution of the Jewish people. Goes full circle starting with Haman, we read about in the book of Esther. Then a thousand years later, we have the Islamic invasion, which takes all of that area of the Middle East and North Africa, and the Jewish people are, many are killed, many are dispersed, many are put under the thumb of Islam. Then we have the Spanish Inquisition, and then we have in Europe, the Jews are becoming the, the largest group of Jews in the earth or in Europe, and we know the Holocaust, and two-thirds of them are killed. And then finally, they trickle back down to Israel, which is where the red arrow is. And today, we have half of the Jews of the world, just about, uh, in Israel, almost one half. And it's no coincidence that all the way back at the beginning, in the land of Haman, we have Iran threatening to annihilate Israel. This history goes on for centuries and centuries and centuries, no matter where the Jews are, wherever they began to prosper and they began to grow, then something moves in to annihilate them. You cannot answer or explain that history with any other explanation but a spiritual explanation. No other people on the face of the earth has had this relentless pursuit, no matter where they are in the world, a relentless pursuit of them. But this scripture at the top tells us why. Psalm 83 verses 1 through 4, just the highlights of it, is, O oh God, those who hate you have declared let us cut them off as a nation that the name of Israel will be remembered no more. This is a spiritual war between the powers of hell and God, his choice, his plan to redeem the world and the Messiah of the world, Christ Jesus. That is what it's all about. And the Jewish people have been 
you should you could say stuck in the middle of this war all these centuries we are also in the middle of this war because we are also we are grafted in to the the believing of Israel and we are called as the church to f push back on that darkness and so we have a lot that we can learn from the resiliency of the of the Jewish people and of their everlasting strength that they i believe draw from God himself. So in our day, the Jewish people have come home. Israel has come home. And Isaiah 11, 11 and 12 has predicted this day for us. It says that it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. Remember, I said there was a first exile and a first return. Then there was a second exile. And in our days, we've seen the Lord raise his hand and began to gather them back on stage that second time after the second exile to recover the remnant of his people who are left. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So God in his bringing the Jewish people back to the land has raised a banner to the nations. Now, what is a banner? A banner carries a message. And the message on this banner is God's faithfulness to his people and to his promises that he made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. I am a faithful and covenant-keeping God. I do not break covenant, nor do I alter the word that has gone out of my mouth. Because of God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham and to the Jewish people, we can celebrate in the faithfulness of our God. We can know that we can stand firm on his word, that it is true, it is yea, and it is amen. Joel 3 confirms that in those days when he brings back the captives of Judah, that he will draw the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat and enter into judgment with them there. So I want to br bring this to conclusion that the calling on Israel is number one, being that birthing people through whom God works when he gets them on the stage and he's ready to act. But secondly, through them, there is a day coming of judging the nations. And Joel uh, chapter three tells us that as I just read, but Jesus himself predicted it. And in Matthew 25, where he said, the son of man will come with the angels around him and he will take his place on the throne and he will gather the nations before him. So when Jesus returns that day that Jesus sets his feet on the Mount of Olives is a day of judgment for the nations. So you better believe that the nations are raging against the return of the Jewish people to the land because the powers of hell that drive them and guide them know that their day is coming to an end and that God's truth is going to reign and he's going to bring his judgment. So if we could go two more slides um, to the next one and to the next one here. What can we do? Now that we understand the calling um, on Israel, we understand the need for prayer on their behalf. And um, 
before I go there, I'm going to go back to our opening scripture here in Acts. When they asked Jesus, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times of the Father. Then he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be witnesses unto me. What's happening here is that the disciples were still in their Israel uh, mode and they're asking him about the next step for Israel. And what he's telling them is the calling on them as the church. And the calling on the church is to take to the four corners of the earth the good news of what God did for us on that Jewish stage through the Jewish Messiah through his death on that tree. But I believe we have a second calling in the earth today, and that is to stand with what he's doing in Israel. God knew that when he brought his people back that the nations would oppose it. He knew the hatred. He knows what's behind it. And he knows they're going to do everything they can to wipe this people off the face of the earth, take over their stage, and even take over their temple mount. So he has called us to be his watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem and that we would not keep silent day or night. And Isaiah 62 says, keep not silent. And you who make mention of the Lord, give him no rest until he establishes and he makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. This is the calling on the church. It is very different from his calling on the people people of Israel. And I hope that this has helped you to understand that difference and to walk uh, in that balance. There is another area of imbalance sometimes in our world. And I, I, I can tell you when I uh, came back from Israel that first trip and, and even after my second trip, getting a master's degree there. And one day the Lord pricked my heart and I prayed this prayer and I said, Lord, I know that I do not have the same love for the Arabs that I have for the Jews. And I know that you love all men the same. See, that's that world that God loved and he sent Jesus to die for. I said, you love all men the same. So I ask you to change my heart. And over the next year, he did some amazing things. And, and within two years, he had brought George into my life. And we carry together a love for Israel and an understanding of, of the biblical significance of Israel, but a love for all the peoples of the Middle East that Jesus died for. And so George is going to come now and share with you just for a few minutes uh, what God has put on his heart George? Okay. How can I top that? <laughs> That's my biggest problem. It is magnificent. And uh, Susan has been preaching this for uh, just recently. And um, it really, uh, for, for, for a lot of people who are struggling with Israel and see it as a political uh, issue. When they hear this, things becomes a lot clearer uh, that it is the everlasting, the, the long-lasting fight between good and evil, between God and the enemy. But what I want to share with you tonight is that loving and supporting Israel does not mean at all 
that we should stand in hatred or fear toward the Arabs. Um, I submit to you that the Lord loves the Arab people and he loves Muslims uh, like uh, everybody else. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes, especially, Susan talked about the balance between the right and the balance between the left. Either we are into replacement theology or we are want to become Jews more than Christians. Uh, it is really God doesn't have less love for the Arabs and the Muslims than the Jews or the church. I think it is another evidence that the enemy of God is using the brother of Isaac to undermine his plans. I believe that, uh, is this working? Okay. Uh, I believe that uh, Isaac, um, and, and sometimes every time I read the story, I put myself in his shoes. Here is a child being kicked out of his house and walked away. He loved his father, but he feel like his father abandoned him. He loved his brother, but he feel like his brother abandoned him. And he goes away, even though God said he will protect him. And God said that he will make a great nation uh, out of him. But this nation somehow have the same complex of rejection. This nation, if you talk to any Muslim person, and this is not a coincidence, he wants to bring Israel down. He hates the Jews. He portrayed the Jews as the descendants of apes um, and, and swans. Um, and Susan talked about things in life that could not be explained but spiritually. And this hatred could not be explained but spiritually. So what I'm trying to add to what Susan said is that in this battle, in this epic battle between God who wants to establish his plans and the enemy who wants to destroy these plans, he's using Ishmael to destroy God's plans. Some people say, uh, well, we need to go and fight and we have the people that send the armies and I just happen to be, uh, have a business that specialized in training our armies before they are deployed. And some people said, well, no, we need to just accept the way, accept it the way it is. We have a lot of liberals in America that defend Islam and the Islamic presence in America. And I'm sure Europe have the same people but very few people approach Islam the right way. Not in fear and not in hatred and not in submission, but the way the Lord wants us to reach Muslims. Like everybody else who doesn't know the Bible, we submit the truth, we give them the love of Christ, we give them the good news. This is the best way. And it's not just romantically uh, to love your enemy. And it's not just idealistic. Actually, it's very practical. If you think about it, how else can we solve the Islamic challenge to the church? Except by following what Jesus told us to do. If you fight, there is 1.5 billion. 
the, the whole earth will be in ruin. If you submit, you have to submit to Sharia, and they will fight you until you denounce your faith. It's the Sharia. So the only way we can answer Islam is for the church to be ready, is for the church to get serious, is for the church to educate herself about Islam and learn how to reach out to Muslims. We are lucky. We have tools that was never available to our ancestors, the early Christians. They had to travel, they have to go there, and they have to fight the good fight, and usually they lose and they die. How many blood spilled on Muslim lands by missionaries? Abundant. And the results, if a missionary end his life by bringing a Muslim to the Lord, he's so happy. Well, something is happening. Something is happening. The Lord decided to do something to encourage us. And the Lord starts doing many miracles and supernatural approach to Muslims. Many Muslims are seeing visions and dreams and learning about Jesus. The Lord made it possible for people to reach Muslims through satellites, uh, through the internet, uh, through the new technology. And it is wonderful. 30 years ago, before I uh, emigrated to the United States, um, I go to our church, which is an evangelical church, the largest in Tahrir Square, which I'm sure a lot of you heard the name Tahrir Square during the revolutions in the recent years. And every Friday, I leave the school and I walk and I go to uh, the youth meeting and everybody was so excited and I didn't know in the beginning what is going on. And finally, they shared with me that unbelievable miracle took place. That a student in medical school came to the Lord and he declared that he's leaving the Islamic faith and becoming a Christian. Well, you need to understand that was 30 years ago. That was unheard of in a Muslim country that's very hostile to Christians and it doesn't make any sense for anybody to say that he's a Christian, let alone that he's a Muslim and becoming a Christian. And the Lord gave me this vision that this is just the drop in the beginning of a flood. And a few years later, few girls from a fundamentalist Muslim school came to the Lord. And I told my friends, we are witnessing the drops before the flood. And sure enough, the flood is happening today. Muslim countries don't know how to deal with what's going on. Around 20 years ago, uh, an Orthodox priest by name Father Zechariah Botros took to the air. He was kicked out of Egypt because he was preaching to the Muslims and performing healings. Uh, Muslims in wheelchairs would stand up and he said, Jesus healed me and they, you know, they want to kill them. No, 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 it's my, no, it was Jesus who healed me. And so they kicked him out of the country and that was the biggest mistake because that guy since then was the pioneer in reaching out to Muslim through the media, through the satellites, through the TVs. And you wonder why a man like this, talking like that about Islam, is still on the air. And people don't know why. 
But the Lord wants him to be there. And before you know it, he have disciples. And those disciples took to the air. Each one has, have his very successful ministry. And before you know it, the movement moved from the Arabic-speaking countries in the Middle East into Iran, which is one of the most fundamentalist uh, Muslim countries in the world. And the movement of Muslims coming to Christ become, become, became so severe, so big, that the government now doesn't know what to do with it. They killed them. They put them in jail. They did everything possible. And it's still growing. The church always prospers spiritually when it's under attack. Susan and I were... A couple of months ago, in, uh, in a meeting with one of the leaders of the uh, uh, Iranian church, and he showed us a video about a conference in a house uh, that was uh, over 200 people with one bathroom. But they were there, and it's by invitation only. And you need to know each other. They cannot have stranger because of the secret police infiltrating their movements. And they baptize each other. The father will baptize his son. The husband will, will baptize his wife because it became a, a, a crime punishable by death if you baptize anybody. So the relatives baptize each other. So it's a guarantee that he is not a secret police. And the movement is like that all over the Muslim world. It is not a coincidence, I told you, that when a Muslim comes to the Lord, his attitude toward Israel is totally changed. Again, because Islam hijacked the other son of Abraham and using him against his brother. Why? To fail God's plans. And that's exactly what he's doing using the Muslim people. So... When we pray for them, when we study their arguments, and when we study our Bible and how can we defend our faith, and when we can reach them over the internet, we are actually helping God succeed in his plans and fighting the enemy of God who kidnapped, hijacked the brother uh, of, of, uh, of uh, Isaac, um, to fight God's plan. So please, uh, you might ask me, what can we do? Please pray. Again, 25 years ago, who remember the 1040 window? Uh, yeah, we're very old, honey. Uh, in those days, the churches all over the world united in praying uh, on the window that is limited by horizontal and vertical of the 10 and 40. And if you look at the map, this area limited by these two parameters are 100% includes the Muslim world. And the churches in the Middle East and in the West, in the United States and in Europe start to pray diligently for this 1040 window. What we are witnessing today is not a coincidence. It's a result, a direct result to this movement, this prayer movement. So every time you pray for the Muslim people and Muslim countries, you are ushering the Messiah. You are helping him because the fulfillment of the Gentile first and then the Jews. So what the Lord is doing in the Muslim world is abundant, 
it's increasing and he gave us tools to help advance his plans. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.